Hi friends, welcome back. This is Alex Hochuli, and what you're about to hear is the second part of the chat Phil and I had with economist Branko Milanovic. We look forward to hearing what you made of it, so as usual, leave your comments on Patreon, and we'll discuss them on the next Alpha Bonus bonus episode. Enjoy! So this takes us um, to a parallel but separate question about in capitalism alone. Um, And then I just wanted to address this because I was very taken with it. Um, uh, But but then and then to uh, as we come towards the end of our discussion, I wanted to come back to two points, which is about the um, this question of the trade off and how far we're confronting the prospect of serious social and economic problems in the developed world. But before then. So one of the core kind of claims in capitalism alone, and I remember you made this with specific reference to developments such as Airbnb, um, where you indicate that capitalism's capacity to commodify, um, you know, it's still very strong and there is still very little, you know, uh, meaningful or substantive uh, political challenge or effort or potential to substitute it with something else. Um, so I was quite I was struck by that, and I suppose I wanted to I wanted to hear more about it in two respects. First is the so on the one hand, you know, it's to commodifying kind of existing assets is very different from developing the forces of production to put it in the kind of classical Marxist sense. And I wonder how much of a problem that is if you know the only thing capitalism can do is kind of basically. Um, you know, kind of asset strip what's already there or commodify things that are already there rather than kind of um, expand growth, you know, in dramatic new ways. The other element which is um, which is linked to that is how far does that, how far is that, you know, given the fact that all these kind of the new economic models that have emerged a lot of years seem to be so dependent on um, a low interest rate economy and on an economy which is organized around asset inflation. And if that is kind of coming to an end, then does that also undermine this, uh, the capacity for capitalism just to kind of continue commodifying, basically? Um, on, the, on the first question, uh, let me, I thought of that recently in connection to my book, actually, that we mentioned at the very beginning, the one that I'm writing now. And uh, Schumpeter, uh, very rightly uh, says, and one has to think a little bit about that, says if, if there is no, uh, if the rate of return is zero, essentially capitalism ends. Because the question is very simple. Like if I'm a capitalist and on average, I get nothing from my investment and from my activity, because you can maybe include also entrepreneurial role, which is not paid as a salary. Why should I do that? You know. This is the same thing as asking a worker to work for free. You're not going to work. You're not going to get involved. So that's why actually Schumpeter says that a, a capitalism that is not dynamic cannot exist. So the dynamic part, which is of course linked to the way with rate return, and we know in economics, rate of return is actually you as is then normally in Marxist and actually neoclassical view is the source of investment. So the two things go together. If there is no return, if there is no profit, there is no investment, capitalism stops. Then the problem is the following. You know, it goes back to Rosa Luxemburg when she said, okay, well, capitalism in order to expand has to expand to the new areas that actually has to go physically to the new countries. 
to colonize and so on. We now have, with this uh, commodification, we have the expansion of capitalism in a different dimension. It's not like land getting new countries because basically all the countries have been included in the world uh, capitalist system, the global capitalist system. It's really creating new commodities. And the question that you ask is a very pertinent one. To what an extent is it a real creation? Because the commodities do exist there. Essentially, they have not been commodified because they were not part of the commercial transaction. But if you make everything part of the commercial transaction, if as I was saying, if you actually then ask that people when you go uh, to a store, that actually if you go for a friend to buy milk and bread and you say, okay, this is a transaction give me 20 cents for that. Everything becomes commodified, the GDP goes up, but there is really no change in anything. So that, that's the, pro, the, the issue that I, I see your point and I think it's a very pertinent question. Uh, yeah. a lot, lots of our growth today, I think comes from the activities that have ex been in existence before, but they have not been commodified. Now the commodification brings one aspect which is really sort of, I think, detrimental and that we have to actually wonder about to what an extent commodification destroys our very long-held traditional beliefs and ways of interacting with our friends, with family, and with others. And I think in that respect, we, will have, we might have two problems to summarize. One is that essentially we may not have a real growth. We might simply have commodification of activities that ever existed. And that commodification might have a destructive feature or ability to destroy some of the long-held links that we, all, we had um, in the past and that we believe that actually there is some value to them. Um, you know, who was that, that uh, I think Montesquieu said that a fully virtuous man have, can have no friends. And it's a little bit similar. If you actually have commodification, you, full commodification, you cannot have friends because friends are friends precisely because you don't commodify it. That friendship is beyond commodification. But if everything is commodified, there is no friendship. Mm. And so again, and that takes to the to the second point, which is the is commodification as you describe it. It's predicated on a world of you know the, I suppose uh, the post Cold War era of low interest rates and low inflation. And if that world is coming to an end, then perhaps that model of commodification is also um, a dead end or at least blocked now. It could be. I'm really not sure. I haven't thought of that. Uh, but I thought that. I don't make this point, but I think one could make it. One could argue that the commodification represents a, a sort of inability of the system to generate new goods to a sufficient extent. Yeah. So if you're unable to generate new goods to a sufficient extent to keep your rate of uh, return positive, uh, then you really have to go back to the to creating to commodify uh, things, and that leads to all the issues that I mentioned before. So I, I think that could be an argument that could be made. As I said, I haven't made that argument in the book, uh, but to answer your question more precisely, I really haven't thought of that. So I really uh, I, I see your point that actually rate of interest, obviously, by increasing the asset prices, makes the commodification much more attractive. Um, 
but and th there is a certain logic to that. Let me just I'm sort of th sort of thinking aloud. If the interest rate is is low, that really represents uh, it's a reflection of the inability of this to generate sufficiently high rate of return and sufficiently high growth. So, yeah. but if the rate of return is low, asset prices are high. And then assets become a very good targets for commodification. So it, the two things could actually go together that actually the inability to generate really useful rate of return leads to the commodification of activities that existed before. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's something which I, I mean, it's a question that comes from thinking aloud on my part, too. And it's something I mean, I'm thinking about in a different context, but it also stems from, um, you know, the um, uh, articles that have been put in the Financial Times about how the some of the things that we become accustomed to are products of a very particular economic era. Um, the gig economy, Airbnb, um, Netflix and streaming and kind of things which make us, you know, has kind of um, at least to some degree improved the quality or standard of living for certain, you know, for some of the population in the West, at least. So that air, that might be coming to an end. And I wondered how that kind of intersected with your argument about commodification and um, I suppose uh, the capacity to deliver new goods. Um, but building on that, because, yeah. No, I just wanted to ask you what was I, I didn't understand why what was the logic? Why would uh, sort of Netflix and others uh, come to an end? What was their argument? So the, well, the argument the argument is that the things like Uber. I mean, it was made specifically with Uber, but that mm -hmm. um, Uber, given the fact that it's only existed on a um, Uber and other gig economy models have only existed on the possibility of cheap money. And given the fact that they've never kind of turned mm -hmm. a profit, that they're going to effectively be pushed to the wall or that they're simply going to be less appealing. And then Netflix and the other streaming services are encountering problems as people kind of um, their spending, spend less mm -hmm. money on those kinds of things. And so I suppose I wonder, it made me, it yeah. pushed me to think about the question of how far, you know, how far commodification can be extended, at least the way in which it's been done so far. But I think your point of commodification being linked, and that was something that we really thought aloud, at least I thought aloud, uh, being linked to the low rate of interest, I think, or low rate of return, is actually an, it's an important point. I uh, mentioned in Capitalism Alone that, in my view, the gig jobs are simply the, the, the other face of that commodity. It's like the other face of the coin. Uh, of the of commodification, commodification enters in our lives and creates goods, uh, creates commodities out of what was a good, yeah. and in doing so, it actually it creates an enormous number of different jobs. But these jobs are not sufficient because they are actually very fragmentary jobs. They are not sufficient to have a person. I mean, for a person to give a, a full how should I say, vocation in their job. So then what happens is that people actually have to break the, their jobs into small parts and do different things. One, one hour you're a pizza delivery guy, the next day you're actually doing delivery for somebody else. The third day you're using your car for the, uh, uh, not the third day, the third hour, you're using your car to, to drive as a, as a taxi driver and so on. So I thought actually that, that the gig jobs are simply the, the the expression the reflection of the commodification okay 
Yes, I, I can see now. I can see now the. Um, uh, I can see more clearly now the the structure of the argument um, about commodification and uh, and the rate of return. Um, take us to to the net, to this question, the inevitable question about inflation and inequality. Um, and I mean, uh, obviously, we're conscious of the fact that it's very early to offer any definitive response on such questions but we were we're very we are curious and i'm sure our listeners are curious to know what your first cut assessment would be of how um well what the impact of this recent inflationary surge will be and how it compares if there's anything we can we know already as to how it compares to previous historical episodes of inflation yeah, there are lots of studies, you know, I'm old enough to remember them, but the 1970s were full of studies obviously on inflation. It was in those days of stagflation, which actually may be relevant for us again today. Uh, but inflation was generally considered to be pro-inequality. The reason was the following. Brazil, I think, well, is a great example. As you know, the Brazil had hyperinflations and people have really learned very well, uh, people who have money, they have learned very well to protect themselves. Uh, the reason why you it is considered pro-inequality is because uh, uh, poor people have a larger share of their expenses for which they need to keep cash. In other words, if, you know, let's, let's take food, you know, for a poor, poor, poor person, food is like 40% of his or her budget. For a rich person, it could be 4%. So if you need to keep a, 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 a liquid, a certain part of your assets in order to buy food on a daily basis. So in one case, you would have to keep 40% of your assets and the other case, 4% of your assets. And this, if these assets devalue, because of inflation, then obviously the cost in, in relative terms is greater for the poor person. So that was the, the argument that the rich people are more capable and able to find ways to protect themselves against inflation. I think that the argument should be still valid. You know, I have not done any work. I have not seen the studies. But on the other hand, that argument is probably even reinforced today by the fact that we have had relative price increases more significant into two areas, which are food and energy, that are, of course, crucially important, again, percentage-wise, for poor people. If you take people in Africa, energy and food are like 80% of their budget. I mean, in yeah. some cases, it could be like 100% of the budget. And if these two relative prices go up, then obviously the real income of people uh, who are poorer would be reduced by more than the real income of people who are richer. If, if lots of my spending goes on, you know, I don't know, uh, uh, things like theater or restaurants or travel, uh, I would be less affected than if most of my spending uh, is really driven by food and energy. Mm. So this um, this takes us to this back to the question of economic growth and the um, the necessity of economic growth, like you say, for a world that is still so poor in so many ways. And I was very struck. This was a while back now, but it, you borrowed from the American right 
um, when you remarked on social media that what we really needed was um, a paleo leftism in which you saw that there was kind of a gap in the market, so to speak, of, um, of what was available in terms of left-wing politics. And you said we needed paleo-leftism. And I wondered if you could uh, just briefly explain what paleo-leftism is and how you would characterize it. You know, I, I actually thought of it. I was even asked to write uh, more about that, but I never did it. Uh, but uh, to me, uh, you know, I haven't thought of this very deeply. But to me, paleo-leftism means really going back to the various of the left, social democratic left that were really prevalent uh, in the 1960s and the 70s until essentially social democracy became co-opted as part of neoliberal agenda. Uh, and... That one thing is growth. I've talked before about the importance of growth, not only in rich countries, but also yeah. in, in obviously middle-income countries and poor countries. But we must see it in rich countries. You know, when, when there is a recession, nobody's applauding recession. Now nobody's saying this is great that we have recession. Yeah. Uh, the second point is reduction of inequality. And I think these two things are, are really, in my opinion, uh, they go together. You know, I actually uh, don't think at all that you have to have greater inequality to have growth. I think very often reduction of inequality may be, particularly in Latin America, for example, is a precondition for growth because you're actually by reducing inequality, you're allowing people to, uh, to, to participate in the economic life. If people do not get education and they're sick, how are they going to participate in economic life? They are just surviving from day from one day to another. So the second point is inequality, and the third point is more international. Point is uh, you know let me say international and global inequality, which then goes back to our original point uh, about Fukuyama and Panse Unique and so on is uh, acceptance of different ways of uh, organizing society, competing, yeah. absolutely crucial economic competition, but without military invasions and without attempts to impose. And I think, going back, I mentioned roles before, but we should not forget that we had the second book in 1990, 1999, uh, The Law of Peoples. And the objective of the book was precisely to find the way that societies whose regimes or systems are based on different definitions of legitimacy can coexist. And that's absolutely crucial for us. If we want to survive and not have a global war, we have to learn to live with the differences, as yeah. I said, which doesn't mean that we should not have a competition, but we should not move that competition into the military sphere and an aggressive ideological competition. And so you so paleo left would there would be a paleo left question position sorry on questions such as the ukraine war or say net zero ambitions i mean i'm inferring from what you're saying then that the paleo left position would be um deeply concerned about the ukraine war and how it came about but also perhaps suspicious or skeptical of um if net zero ambitions and the challenges they might pose to economic growth I, I agree with both. Actually, in the case of, of the Ukraine war, obviously a left position is was based on the, the UN uh, uh, equality of nations and uh, uh, collective security. You cannot have, by the UN rules, attacks of one country on another and consider that normal. This is like a rule number one. I mean, these countries have become members of the United Nations in order to guarantee their territorial integrity. So uh, for me, it is actually the crucial uh, 
uh, starting point in that particular in, in the case of the war. And I, as I was saying, actually, I said this on Twitter, there is a big difference. If your starting point is this one that I just mentioned, or your starting point is some sort of nebulous story about democracy in Ukraine and this or that. And I think that yeah. story, in my opinion, doesn't make any sense. The story which actually has to be, it makes sense, is the story of the national borders, which are not which cannot be violated, and in independence of the countries. And that was this third point I mentioned: growth, inequality, and international independence, in the sense that that countries have to be guaranteed against intrusion. So uh, that takes us to our very last question, which is to ask you a bit about your um, your new book on inequality, which you uh, mentioned to us at the beginning. Um, and I'll hand over to Alex to pick that one up. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, only just to say, I, I mean, I'm obviously very interested to hear kind of what the scope of the book is, um, what you're looking to do with it. But specifically, as you had mentioned, Marx earlier on, um, Marx, of course, kind of almost famously is misunderstood as being an egalitarian. And I'm interested yeah. to hear what you found in going back and studying Marx, uh, looking at him precisely through that lens of equality and inequality. Well, I mean, it's a great question. I have, first, I have to explain that the book is actually looking at how different people, important people who happen to be, I mean, since I'm an economist, uh, they are all economists as well, looked at, at, um, at inequality. I start with Francois Kinney, who wrote Before the French Revolution, then continue with Adam Smith, which I think is extremely interesting chapter, David Ricardo as well, and uh, go to Marx, and I'll speak of Marx in, in a second, continue with Pareto. There is one interesting detail, actually, that Marx used the data on um, taxation from uh, Irish and, uh, and British data from 1864, I think, which when you put them in today's framework and draw the line, you just get the Pareto line. So it's actually interesting that uh, uh, Marx and Pareto use the same data. Yeah. Uh, I, nobody has actually pointed this out before. And as I continue with Pareto, go, go to Kuznets, and then I discuss inequality studies in socialist and capitalist countries up to 1990. So actually, I end with 1990. Now, let's go back to Marx. I think there are two important points that I make in that chapter. The first is not new, and that's one that you mentioned is that Marx, the, the main interest of Marx and Engels and Marxists was not reduction of inequality as such. The reduction of inequality as such in a capitalist society is really the interest of social democracy that accepts the existence of capitalist relations of production. A Marxist approach, and I think very clear, it is said a number of times, is abolition of classes. So once classes are abolished, then we, there are rules you know, for, possible reduction of inequality, but we really don't discuss anymore inequality because what you might call the, the background institutions are right. You know, there is certain similarity between the Marxist approach there and libertarian approach. Libertarian approach says to you, mm. we'll just have a, a perfect market, a, you know, full market, this is, you know, perfect competition, whatever the outcome is, we are not concerned, you know, in order for you to become rich, you have to sell somebody or to do something to somebody, end of story. Uh, uh, Marx's approach is relatively similar in saying, once we have the abolition of classes, and there is no more exploitation, which is embedded in capitalism, uh, the, the, the returns to individuals, the incomes 
are not really so much discussed. Of course, the assumption would be that by having free education, I mean, public education, public health, by having ability to, uh, to not to transfer a huge amounts, because Marx, of course, mentions the uh, uh, taxation of inheritance, you would actually have these uh, background institutions that would not allow high inequality. However, high inequality is not, you know, or inequality is not per se discussed in a new society. The main issue is abolition of classes. So I think that's not a new point, but it's actually important to emphasize mm. because we have been so much schooled into social democracy that when you tell people the story that I just told, they bomb bars, they sort of don't believe. <laughs> yeah. You have to be in reduction, in favor of reduction. As I said, yes, he was, but it was not the number one issue. And the second part, which I think is new, I actually went and... Uh, uh, the pose the following question. What would Marx say? What would be the evolution of inequality in a capitalist society over time? And you know, the general interpretation, which can be defended, but I, I don't think it's, I will come to a moment. I think it's one of the possible interpretations. The general interpretation is the following. The wages would remain low at the subsistence or quasi-subsistence level and there will be greater concentration of capital incomes. When you put these two things together, you get an increase in inequality, it's obvious. That interpretation, I believe, can be challenged very seriously. And I think, it, first, let me start with wage. It can be challenged because Marx never says that wages are at the subsistence level in all societies. The wages have a very significant socioeconomic component, which depends on the level of development of a society, on the level of organization of the working class, trade union, bargaining position, and so on. But especially, actually, there were very nice examples when Marx actually discusses the difference in real wage between England at the top and Russia at the bottom, and actually says that's because England is more developed than Russia. So you can argue that wages with development of capitalism would go up based on Marx's writings, not just me making this up. And mm. secondly, with the tendency of the profit rate to uh, fall, you can argue that capitalists be would become less rich. Now, there is a countervailing tendency of the concentration of capital, but I'm just going through the textual approach of Marx. And I think based on the textual analysis of Marx, you can actually argue the opposite, the polar opposite of what I think is the standard view. And the polar opposite is the increase of wages and the decline in profits. And the two of them mean lower inequality. Consequently, I believe that Marx can be used and it could be argued that Marx's predictions were not in the opposition to what we have seen happening in the West after 1945. So let's conclude like that. I don't say that so explicitly in the book because I don't want to go into that kind of a sort of daily discussion, but I think that textually uh, Marx's predictions can be made compatible with observed evidence after World War II. Um, that's very interesting. I have to ask you also what the title of the book is, and of course, when it'll be out. The, bo the book's title is Through the Lens of Inequality. So in other words, I look at what Smith or Kenney or Marx have to say about inequality, not always directly, because as you can see in this example, I look at what Marx would have thought about wages, because they don't use very often, actually, most of them don't use the word inequality at all. 
you know, and they, they actually, I have to piece it together from the evolution of wages and profit, basically, and land rent in the case of Ricardo and, and also others, Kine, obviously. Uh, so uh, uh, I leave aside, for example, things like uh, uh, Ricardo's comparative advantage. It doesn't really play much role there. Uh, Marx's uh, theory, I mean, uh, value theory of labor also doesn't play in the role that I just explained before. So there are many components that I leave aside. And that's why I call the book Through the Lens of Inequality, because I look at each of them through the lens of inequality. So it's a very narrow uh, focus that you take, but it's a focus I have to say that nobody has taken before. And is there is there any sort of general point that you've taken away from, from having done this research, um, which has maybe surprised you, take, left you taken aback or changed your perspective somehow? I think an important conclusion, in my opinion, is it comes in the last chapter, which I call the eclipse. And that's the eclipse of studies of inequality, both in socialism and capitalism. And I explain why it happened in socialism. It's a long story. It's not a very simple story. I'm actually know myself because my dissertation, as I said before, was on income inequality in Yugoslavia, and then why it happened in capitalism. And I think the reason, I call this the Cold War economics. I think that the Cold War economics, both in the East and in the West, uh, had the objective of arguing that their societies were no class-based anymore. Obviously, in socialist countries, that was by definition, they said, we don't have classes anymore, which I don't think was true. And in capitalist countries, because of the preponderance of the American importance in, um, in economic studies and the fact that the class was much less important historically in the US than in Western Europe. And the fact that the US was in competition with the Soviet Union, uh, class disappeared. And when class and the approach towards different sources of income become irrelevant, when you just say capitalists and workers are all the same, this guy has 50, this guy has five, but I really don't care about the source, then income inequality studies go into a decline. Mm. And that would be my uh, conclusion. Essentially, if you decide that you're not going to use a class lens through which to look at the income inequality, it will disappear because we all become, as of course, in extreme case in neoclassical theory, we all became agents. So I'm agent and you're agent and Bill Gates is an agent and the homeless guy is an agent and we are all optimizing rather within constraints. We are all the same. And if you take this approach, then why should you have income inequality study at all? It would be purely empirical studies, which are important, but they really do not address the underlying issues in society. And I think that's what happened until the 1990s. I think with the end of communism, and then of course with the, with the, with the uh, uh, global financial crisis and the role of Piketty as well, which is quite important, we actually now have a very different situation from the one that existed in the 1980s or the 1970s and the 1990s. We have a return of inequality studies. Well, fascinating. I'm sure we're both uh, definitely looking forward to reading that. Um, when is it out? Do you have a Do you have a release date? Well, you know, it is. Uh, it's going to be with Harvard uh, University Press again, like with the other two books. And I think most likely date will be September next year. So it's one year from now. Well, excellent. Um, well, I think we might leave this here, but thank you so much, Branko. And hopefully, you'll be coming back on uh, maybe in a year's time to to talk about uh, <laughs> to talk about the book in more depth. 
I would be very, very actually, I would be delighted. We're very happy. Thank you very much, Phil, Thank you, Alex. Thank uh, you. Excellent questions. And I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, I hope you guys liked it as well. So let's stay in touch next year. Absolutely. And yeah. I hope and, and I and I trust our listeners will will find it interesting as well. And I'm it's very thought-provoking. Mm-hmm.